Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Um, I'm Greg, one of the pastors here, and I just want to reiterate uh, one of those announcements that uh, Dave made. We are starting the New Believers class tomorrow, and so we, we ask that if you are new in your faith or you're interested in that, today is the last day to sign up, so please do that uh, today, and I hope you do. All right, well, before we get into the new series that we're kicking off this morning, I want us to actually take a moment as a church family, whether you're here in person or you're watching, and maybe you're watching a week from now, um, I want us to pause and let's pray together as a church for Ukraine. Okay, if you guys have been uh, hearing in the news, Russia for a while now um, has been threatening to attack and invade Ukraine, and this past Thursday, Putin went forward with those attacks. And even as we speak and as we worship this morning, there's a war going on. There, there's fighting going on, and I want us to be very intentional to pray for Ukraine, and there are like hundreds of ways you could be praying right now, a lot of ways. If you go to my Facebook page, I posted an article to act as a prayer guide. There's a guide there and some scriptures to know how to pray through this situation, but this morning, I'm going to ask us as a church family to pray for at least two uh, things this morning. The first is this. I'm going to ask that we pray for the church in Ukraine. There are many brothers and sisters uh, in, in Ukraine right now who are, are probably fearing their lives, and nobody's immune to fear, especially when your life is physically threatened. So we're going to pray that they are courageous and bold, that God protects them, but also pray for the church to rise up. This is not a time for the church to shrink back. This is a time for the church to be a light in the present darkness, and that is easy to say, it's hard to do, but we're going to pray uh, that they'll be able to do that in the power of the Spirit. I received an email from uh, some missionary friends of mine who lived in Ukraine for uh, several years and then lived in Russia as well, and they asked us to pray for the Christian mi uh, ministries there, the, the Bible colleges there, because if it's anything like what happened in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, the, the schools, the ministries were shut down and silenced. And so let's pray that God protects the church in Ukraine. Secondly, I'm going to ask that we pray for the unchurched, right? Because if there's anybody we cannot neglect praying for are those who do not know Jesus yet. If those who know Jesus perish, they perish, but they get Christ forever. And we praise God for that. If someone doesn't know Jesus and perish they perish literally forever, and that is not okay. And so let's pray that right now as people are crying out for help, people are desperate that they would look for help wherever they can get it. I pray that God will show himself that when they see God, they would cling to him with their whole lives and give them his heart. So let's pray. I, I want to ask that right now as a church. Let's take a moment. I'm going to give you some time to pray quietly. Um, we're going to do this as one heart, but pray quietly, then I will uh, pray for us, and then I'll also pray for the word. All right, so let's pray for Ukraine. Father, as your church, we want to begin by declaring and acknowledging that you are God who sits above the entire universe. Your word says that the nations belong to you. So God, right now we pray specifically for Ukraine. We pray that they would be in your hands and that they would know it. I pray for the church, Lord, that you would really supernaturally fill the believers with your presence, your power, and with a courage and a boldness that is not natural. I pray that they would rise and that they would not be silent about their faith as they're trying to fight for their lives and their freedom. I pray that they would fight mostly for the kingdom of God. And we pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that as they may feel desperate right now and just really needing help and protection, 
that they would seek it, and I pray that they would find you. God, do not hide your face from them. Lord, show them who you are. Show them your glory. We have no idea why this is happening. We have no idea why this is happening and and what it means for the eternal scheme of things. We don't know what lies in the future, but you do, God. And so we pray that people will see that you are in control. And we pray for evil. We pray that you you would fight against evil, Lord, that your righteousness would prevail. Lord, we just look to you as a church. I pray that we would right now be reminded that this is not a time to be lazy in our faith. This is not a time to be lukewarm. Things are happening, God. We know that Christ could come at any time, but Lord, help us today to live standing on the solid foundation of Christ, living our lives for you and your kingdom, God. God, I pray that as we get into your word right now, that you would speak to every person listening, from the youngest to the oldest. I pray that this would be clear, that it would make sense and strengthen our faith, bolster up our faith, so that we know what we believe is true. So we give this time to your Holy Spirit. We give you our hearts and our minds, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we kick off a new series, and it's called What We Believe. And if you've ever gone to our website and checked out our statement of faith, you'll notice that for the next seven weeks, we're covering some of the core doctrines stated in our statement of faith. And maybe you've taken a systematic theology course in Bible school or seminary, and you'll notice that these are the core doctrines that are covered in systematic theology. So this series is very much like a mini systematic theology series, and I hope that you'll be strengthened and encouraged by it. Now, we're going to be talking about doctrines like the doctrine of of God, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, of man and sin and how it is we are saved. Talk about the doctrine of the church and the last days. And everything we believe about each of those core tenets of our faith comes from this book right here, the Bible. And if this is the foundation of our faith, this informs everything we believe, then we have to know that this is true And trustworthy. And so to start off the series on what we believe, I want to start off by discussing this morning, what do we believe about the Bible? How can we know that this is true and trustworthy? So to start us off, I want to put up a statement from our statement of faith regarding the Bible. And as I read, I want to ask you to uh, join me out loud. I'd love to hear you through your masks. I'd love to hear you through the screen. But let's read this out loud. It's not an oath. You're not swearing to anything. You're not being held to this. But, but this is what we believe. So will you join me in reading it? Ready? Let's go. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inspired word of God without error and complete as the revelation of God's will for salvation and the supreme and final authority in all matters to which they speak. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is the inspired, inerrant word of God and it is our final authority on all matters in which they speak and in fact all matters? I hope that by the end of this time you'll have a stronger faith that that is true. So I don't know if you guys have heard, but in 2019, they discovered this new disease. And now they call it COVID-19. Stands for Coronavirus Disease of 2019. Has anybody heard of COVID-19? Anybody? Yeah? How many of you guys, show of hands, participate with me? Raise your hands if you believe that COVID actually exists. That is real. Raise your hands if you believe it's real. Okay, so like a lot of us in this room, most of us in here believe it's real. And if you raised your hand and you believe COVID is a real thing, can I challenge you a little bit? Like, how do you know it's real? Have you seen it? Because I'll tell you, I've never seen COVID with my naked eyes. And this is also true. I have never seen anybody suffering from COVID. Like literally, I've never been in the presence of someone before me. I've heard of people, but they've always been quarantined or behind closed doors. I have not seen a single person suffering from COVID right before me. Maybe you have. I, I haven't. But I believe that it exists. I believe that it's real. Why? How can I say so? Because of all the evidence that points to it and proves it. And the more evidence we have 
The more testimonies testifying to the truth or the reality of something, then the more certain we can be that it is real. So let me share with you how I became a believer that COVID is real. I remember it was March of 2020, and I was excited. Um, actually, before, before that Wednesday, I remember seeing people post on like Instagram and Facebook this thing about a coronavirus. And then I remember reading articles because I wanted to know what is everybody talking about. So I read articles in the LA Times. I read an article from the BBC trying to find out more about this thing they're calling coronavirus. And then that, that Wednesday in March, I was excited because I was supposed to go to a Lakers game. It was going to be the first game for me that season, and they're going to play the Houston Rockets, and I really wanted to see that game. And then I heard on Tuesday, the, the day before, that they canceled the game. And in fact, they canceled the entire NBA for the rest of the season. Now, what in the world could shut down the NBA? This disease called Coronavirus. Then it got really real because I remember that week I was trying to look for what the surf forecast was going to be. So I go to surfline.com. That's my go-to website. And they're talking about coronavirus there. Why? Because now all the beaches are being shut down by this thing called the coronavirus. And all of a sudden, I'm believing that this thing is real. It really exists. Why? Because all these people, all these writers, all these reporters are reporting about the same Thing And I've noticed that whatever platform it was coming from, these different articles and different reports, they weren't necessarily opposing each other. They were telling different stories from different perspectives. Some gave details and data of this disease. Some were testimonies of people who were getting sick with it, like testifying to how it's impacting them. Some were posts of pictures Pictures of people hoarding like toilet paper and and lines around Trader Joe's and and shelves empty of, of, of all the water bottles. It was like gone. And though all of them kind of told a different story, together they are collectively giving us a clearer picture of this thing called the coronavirus. Now who of us questions if it's real? If it's actually out there, the more witnesses, the more evidence we have, the less we can remain in doubt. I'll say that again. The more evidence and the more witness we have, the less we can remain in doubt, the more sure we could be of its reality. So let me ask you, how do you know that this is true? How do you know that you could trust? How do you know this is real? Well, let's put it on trial this morning. And I want to call to the stand this morning the first witness for today. And the first witness, witness number one is this, the internal evidence. If you're taking notes, if you have your apps open, maybe you have your phone open or your notebook, write this down. This is witness number one, the internal evidence. What does it say inside the Bible? And inside the Bible, we have at least a couple testimonies. And the first is the consistency inside. The consistency testifies to the Bible's reality. Would you write that down in your notes as well? Consistency testifies to the Bible's reality. What do I mean by that? Like if you could believe that COVID exists because of all these different writers and reporters on different platforms telling about the same thing, understand that the Bible... can can be sure because of the same thing. This is a collection of 66 different reports. Yeah, the Bible is one book bound together in one book, but do you realize this is 66 books written by over 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years? We have books like Job written around 1,400 B.C., Go down the timeline, we got books like Revelation written around 90 AD. These are authors reporting from over 1,500 years. And these authors are so different from each other, right? So some are reporting from a dungeon, and some are reporting from a wilderness. Some are writing from inside a prison, and some wrote from inside a palace. Some wrote from a lonely island, and some wrote in the midst of a military battle. 
And these guys come from different ethnic backgrounds, different social classes, different professions. You had an Israelite king like Solomon and an Egyptian prince like Moses. You have a tax collector like Matthew, and you have a prisoner like Paul. You have a fisherman like Peter, and you have a doctor like Luke. All these guys are totally different from each other. Some of these guys have never met. Some have no idea that the others exist, for some of them live centuries apart from each other. And yet they all wrote with amazing consistency as they all told one story. They were reporting one news story. It's the good news of God's love for the world and his plan to save the world from its sin through a savior named Jesus. It's amazing consistency and nobody, no man got all these guys together in a room to conspire and to concoct this plan to trick the entire world. No man gathered all these men. How could he? Because they were across different centuries. No man came up with this plan. God did. God did. Understand, this is not the word of man. This is the word of God. And the eternal spirit of God spoke through men, through different generations and history to tell his story, his story of his glory. This is what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit. God, through his Holy Spirit, spoke to these men throughout history to tell his story and his plan to demonstrate his love to this world whom he created. And so internally, we have amazing consistency that testifies to its reliability. But that's not all we have internally because also prophecy testifies to the Bible's reliability. Would you guys write that down? Prophecy testifies to the Bible's reliability. Look, if if you want to make up a myth or a legend to trick the entire world, can I give you a tip? Don't don't go making predictions as part of your story. Don't don't predict stuff because you're going to set yourself up for failure. And if you're going to go ahead and predict stuff, just keep it super vague, right? Like make it fortune cookie. Let's say something like, in the future, the sun will rise, But keep it at that because when you start getting specific and you fail to meet it, people will not trust you. You cannot make predictions and fulfill them again and again and again and again unless you're God and your word is true. I mean, just think about it. Imagine if I told you I'm going to predict that there's going to be a hero who's going to bring the cure to all cancer. It's going to be a Chinese guy. Would you believe me? Well, probably not. You probably don't believe I can predict the future. But what if I said, no, just wait, watch. There's going to be, he's going to be a Chinese baby, and he's going to be born in Hialeah, Florida. And I looked it up. Hialeah, Florida is the least diverse city in the United States, 96% Hispanic population. But I said, just watch. There's going to be a Chinese baby born in Hialeah, Florida. And let's say like tomorrow, this Chinese baby is born in Hialeah, Florida. Will you now believe me that I, I can predict the future? Well, probably not because there's still a 4% chance maybe a Chinese baby can be born in Hialeah, Florida. No, but I said, but listen, watch. When he's born... He's going to be 100% biologically Chinese, but he's going to be born to two 100% Ugandan parents in Hialeah, Florida. And let's say the next day, it's like physically impossible. It would take a miracle, but lo and behold, there's this Chinese boy born to two Ugandan parents in Hialeah, Florida. I said, wait, 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 there's more. Watch, when he grows up in his early 20s, he's going to be playing frisbee golf in Huntington Beach, California, and he's going to pass out. He's going to pass out, and then he's going to go into a coma for 11 days. 
And then when he wakes up, he's going to be like, ah, oh, I know the cure to cancer. And let's say that all actually happens and he says, I know the cure to cancer. Will you maybe start paying attention that maybe Greg knows something? And maybe this guy can cure cancer. Some of you guys will start believing there is something not normal here. These two authors, Robert, Robert Newman uh, and Peter Stoner, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And this book, Science Speaks, has been vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. And these scientists and these mathematicians calculated the chances of one man fulfilling eight prophecies of the Bible by himself. Like probabilities of that, they calculated, is one in 10 to the 17th power chance. Now, what in the world does that look like? Let me show you what that looks like. That, this is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in a sea of zeros. So to help you understand what that probability is like, they said it's kind of like you take the state of Texas and you fill the entire state from the ground up about two to three feet high with silver coins. Just fill it up with silver coins all throughout the state of Texas. And you take one coin and you mark it with a Sharpie. You write, let's say you write on it, I am the Messiah. And you toss it somewhere in that pile in the state of Texas. One in 10 to the 17th power is like one guy randomly coming to the state of Texas and he randomly reaches down into that pile, picks out a coin, and it says, I am the Messiah. And if he's able to do that, you might want to start believing that maybe this guy's the Messiah because that is impossible. It's impossible. Jesus did not fulfill eight prophecies in the Bible. Jesus fulfills 353 prophecies in the Bible by himself. Let me give you some examples. Michael, let's go to the Old Testament. This is 400 years before Jesus ever came to earth. 400 years, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be born in this small obscure town called Bethlehem. Who comes from Bethlehem? Jesus did. And then Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. That's impossible. That's physically impossible. It would take a miracle. Jesus came from a virgin. Zechariah tells us in chapter 9 verse 9 that this Messiah will ride into Jerusalem as a king riding on a baby donkey. Jesus did that. Zechariah 11 also says that he's going to be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. Jesus can't plan that. That's done to him. And that happened. Psalm 22 says that this Messiah will die in a very specific way. He'll be pierced in his hands and his feet. That was written 800 years before Roman crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. Nobody was dying by pierced hands and feet when Psalm 22 was written. But that happened to Jesus. Jesus didn't plan that. He didn't choose his death. It was done to him. Jesus fulfills over 300 predictions and prophecies in the Bible by himself. That's either odd or he's God. And then we go on to so many other prophecies, not just about the Messiah, but just prophecies all throughout Scripture proving that God is real and his word is true. Let me just share with you one. Go back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 20, God prophesies through this prophet Isaiah. And he talks about this guy who's going to show up on the scene. His name is Cyrus. Not an Israelite, a non-Israelite, but look what he says. God who says of Cyrus in verse 28, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And so God is prophesying that there's going to be a guy named Cyrus. He's not an Israelite, but he's going to be my instrument. He's going to lead my people. He's going to shepherd them and he's going to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He's not even an Israelite. This was written 150 years before Cyrus even existed. 
And 150 years later, this guy named Cyrus is born. Cyrus becomes the king of Persia. What does this king of Persia do? He sends the exiles, the Israelites, back to Jerusalem, and he helps assist in the building of the temple, just like God called it. God even named the name through Isaiah. And we see in the Bible just internal evidence through consistency, through the prophecies, that there is evidence that the Bible is reliable. But I, I get it. Internal evidence doesn't stand alone. So can I call up to the stand witness number two? Would you guys write this down? Witness number two is who? It's the external evidence. The external evidence. Let's look at some evidence outside of what the Bible has written. So bibliographical tests testify to the Bible's reliability. So you can write this down. Bibliography testifies to the Bible's reality. Let me try to help you understand what I'm talking about here. So I used to be a youth leader um, at my previous church, and we would have these youth retreats up in Big Bear. And one of the games we were playing was this game called Telephone Charades. Have you guys ever played Telephone Charades? Right, so what happens is like, you give the first guy a clue, that person gets the clue, and he has to act out that clue for the person in front of him. And then the person who receives that clue now acts out what he received to the person from him. And it just goes down the line. And if you've ever played telephone charades, you know what happens in this game, right? So we're playing and we're trying to keep it biblical. It's a, it's a retreat, right? So the clue that we give the first guy, we say, okay, the parting of the Red Sea, right? The parting of the Red Sea, which isn't hard. You just stick a staff in the sand and you part the Red Sea. Like, it's not hard to act out. So we, we give the first guy the clue, parting of the rest. And he does something weird. He starts going like this. We're like, what, what are you doing? And it goes down the line. And by the end, it's like this crazy club scene. This guy's like going crazy. We're like, what happened? We're like, we asked him, what did you receive? He says, the party at the Red Sea. The part, no, it's the parting of the Red Sea. And people will say, that's exactly what you have here. You got a manuscript, a text that has been distorted and it's been corrupted over the years. You're getting things, a message that's gone down the line and you cannot trust what you have as being true. And to that, I want to say that is not true. You have to understand that what we have here is not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation as you would have in a game of telephone. What you have here is you have scholars, masters of the biblical languages, people who have mastered the Greek language or the Hebrew language, in some cases the Aramaic, and they have translated directly from the ancient manuscripts. There's no middleman. So this is not Hebrew translated into Greek and then into Russian and then into German and German into Old English and then Old English into American English and then American English into modern day American English. You do not have that. You have ancient manuscripts and direct translations from people who have mastered the language. And so we could trust that what they copied is what was said in those manuscripts. Now, the question is, how do you know those manuscripts they copied were reliable? Great question. So now we take into account, well, how many manuscripts do we have? Because the more manuscripts we have, the more we can compare with each other and make sure we have exactly what was original. So let me help illustrate that for you. Let's say I'm thinking of something. I have something on my heart, and I want to tell, I want to tell Joel what's on my heart. So I whisper into Joel's ear. And Joel stands up and he says to everybody, and he announces, he says, Pastor Greg is thinking about pickles. How many of you guys would believe, Joel, that that's actually what I originally said? How many of you guys would put your life on it? You'd give up your house if he was wrong. Probably not a lot of you, because that's a gamble. That's 50-50. He could have heard me wrong. He could, try, he could be trying to deceive you. So you might not want to believe one source. But let's say I go, all right, I'm going to tell four people. I'm going to tell Joel, I'll tell Arlenio, I'll tell Jaina, I'll tell Julie. Four people, what's on my heart? So I whisper to each one of them what's on my heart. And three of them, right, Jaina, Arlenio, and Joel say, okay, Greg has on his heart. Individually, they tell you, he's thinking about pickles. 
And, and then Julie goes, no, I'm pretty sure I heard pinkies. He's thinking about pinkies, right? Who's going to believe Julie? And who's going to believe the other three who said, I'm thinking about pickles? Well, you're probably going to believe more the three out of the four. Why? Because they're all saying the same thing. Maybe. You, you might not put your life on it, but you have reason to believe that maybe they're right. Now imagine I tell 100 people, 100 people, whisper to 100 people, and 95 people individually say, I heard that Pastor Greg is thinking about pickles. Would you believe them? Let's say three out of the hundred, three out of the hundred say, no, we're pretty sure he's thinking about pinkies. That's what we heard. And then two people go, no, he's thinking about poke. Like he's thinking about poke. Like how many people are going to believe the two or the three? And how many would believe the 95? And most likely you're going to believe the 95 because you could compare with each other the evidence. Well, the same thing goes when you want to test the reliability of the scriptures. You've got to ask, how many manuscripts do we have and how many of them were different from each other and how many of them agreed? That's important. And when we come to the scriptures, understand that we don't have five manuscripts. We don't have 50 manuscripts. We don't have 500. We have documented 5,000 856 Greek copies. We, we actually have 24,000, but I'm just talking about the Greek ones. And you have to understand, church, that that is outstanding. That is amazing. And you won't appreciate that until you start comparing it with other pieces of ancient literature. So let me help you compare it to other pieces of ancient text. So we look at other things in antiquity. For example, the Odyssey by Homer which a lot of us have studied in school, and, and the, the Odyssey only has 574 copies of the original, which is actually pretty good. That's actually a lot to compare with each other. But nobody's questioning, did Homer really say that? Did he really write that? Do we need to throw, nobody's wanting to throw out Odyssey. Then we go to Julius Caesar's Gaelic War, which only has half of that, 251 copies, which is still a lot to compare with each other. But nobody's saying, did Julius Caesar really write that? Nobody's protesting against Gaelic Wars. And then you have the Annals by Tacitus, only 36 copies in existence. Nobody's questioning that. And yet you look at the evidence, the, 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 the manuscripts we have of the New Testament, 5,856. And at this point, we cannot argue that what we have here is faithful to the original. So we have a lot of external evidence when we look at the bibliographical text, test, but let me give you one more external piece of evidence. And this is amazing. Would you write this down? Archaeology. Archaeology testifies to the Bible's reliability. It's easy. If you want to disprove this book, it's so easy to do, to do just that. Because the Bible has a lot of names and nations and customs and traditions and temples and kingdoms and coins and people. Like, you just go back into history and see, did those things actually exist? Because if they didn't exist then this isn't real. You just throw, it's a fairy tale, it's a legend. So do these things really, is there, are they historical facts? And what is pretty amazing is that archeology span in the past 150 years or so, there's been like this boom, there's been this huge advancement in archeological discoveries. And again and again, it's proving that the Bible is historically accurate. Dr. Nelson Gluck, he is a successful and celebrated archaeologist. He and his team have uncovered 1,500 ancient sites. And his findings can be found in museums, various museums throughout the world. This guy's not a Christ follower. He's not even a Christian. But here's what this successful archaeologist has said. He quotes, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. In other words, nothing we found opposes or contradicts what scripture has said. 
He says, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. This is the best part. Check this out. And he says, and by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. What's he saying? He's saying, look, out of everything we've uncovered, nothing is contradicting the Bible or proving that the Bible is wrong. He says, on the flip side, everything we're finding is just affirming that these details and the historical facts actually happened. Those are true. And then he says, not are we now trying to prove the Bible. Now we're using the Bible to point us in the right direction. Now it's kind of like this is a treasure map and it's showing us where X marks the spot. This says that there should be this thing over here in this city. Let's go over there and let's start now digging. That's how reliable they have found this book to be. He is not a Christian, but he will vouch for the reliability of the facts found in the Bible. And I wish we had time to go over 25,000 plus discoveries, archaeological finds, but let me just give you two, okay, really quickly. King Solomon in the Old Testament. Let's go back about a few thousand years. King Solomon was known to be this figure who had, he was like the richest man in the world who ever walked the earth. All these fortunes. And then we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 14. And it says, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And people go, ha, there we go. See, that's like a Disney story. Like nobody has 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. That, that's like so exaggerated, so, so outlandish. And so they would say, based on passages like these, we know this is a fairy tale. It's made up legend. Until Megiddo was excavated. And in the city of Megiddo, which is in northern Israel, they dug up Megiddo, which was mentioned in the Bible as one of his chariot cities. They dug up the city and they found hundreds upon hundreds of stalls, large and luxurious stalls, even to today's standards that they say would only be fit for a king. And archaeologists look at this and they agree that this indeed was the chariot city mentioned as belonging to Solomon in the Bible. It's crazy. Let, let me give you one more. And this is probably the most fascinating archaeological discovery of the 20th century, not just according to Christians or Christian archaeologists, to, 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 to all archaeologists all over the world. It was discovered in 1947. And the true story is that these Bedouin shepherds were leading their flock of sheep and they, they're teenage shepherd boys and they see this cave and this is the cave and they take some rocks and they launch it and they throw it into the cave and they hear this shatter. And being teenage boys, they're curious, what did we just break? And so they go and they go into the cave and they find pots and pots and pots full of scrolls. And what they discovered in those scrolls, which we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is what's amazing, is they have discovered every Old Testament book, except for the book of Esther, found written in these scrolls. That's crazy. But here's what's crazier. Before these scrolls were found, the earliest Old Testament documents that we had were written in 900 AD. Let me try to give you a picture of what that looks like. Imagine the stage is a timeline. This is the time of Christ. The earliest Old Testament documents that were written, that we had was 900 AD, until we found these scrolls. These scrolls produce scrolls that date back to 250 BC, 250 years before the time of Christ. So we have scrolls that were written 11, over 1,100 years apart from each other. Written 1,100 years apart from each other. And when they compared the documents, what did they find? Virtually no difference in what was copied. Meaning the scribes were so meticulous in copying the original that what we had 250 BC and 980 was virtually the same. 
Now, I say virtually because there were minute details, minute errors. And that was only found in mostly the spelling and some grammar that did not affect the message that was being communicated. That's incredible. So let me try to help you understand what these errors were like. So imagine I get a text from my wife, Monica. I'm going to put up a text here. And imagine my wife texts me this message, and she says this. She writes, Happy Valentine's Day, my dear Gregory. I want to take you out to your favorite restaurant for your favorite meal, a nice big ribeye steak. You deserve it, for you are the best husband in the entire world. Now, let's say I get this text, and I read it, and I see there's some autocorrect, some typos, and I go, uh-uh, I'm not believing this. I'm ignoring it. I'm not going to respond to this. Why? Because she, she wrote, my dear Gregory, and I'm not a deer. I'm not an animal. And grammatically, Valentine should have an apostrophe in that, forget it, this is not true, I'm throwing it out. No, I'm not going to respond like that. Why? Because I get the message and nothing's been distorted in what she's trying to say to me. What am I going to do? I'm getting my steak. I'm getting my ribeye. Why? Because I see the message she's trying to communicate. And in the same way, we have this scroll, these ancient documents of God's message of love to his people. And that does not get distorted. This is what I love. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah was one of the best kept scrolls found. It's called the great Isaiah scroll. And in Isaiah 40 verse 8, here's what it says. God through the prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's God saying there will be nothing that will wipe out my word, not even an iota. And we see that through the scribes, they have meticulously transcribed the scriptures. And God has miraculously preserved his word. No one will diminish his word. So we have the internal evidence. We have the external evidence. And I know those don't stand alone. So let me call up one more witness to the stand. This is the last witness for today. Write this down. We're calling up personal evidence to testify. Personal evidence is our witness number three. Earlier, I tried to challenge you guys, and I said, how many of you guys have actually seen coronavirus? And some of you guys wanted to raise your hand, because even though you haven't seen it with your eyes, you've seen people with COVID. Like, maybe you have someone in your family who came down with the symptoms of COVID. Maybe you work in the hospital and you've seen the scores of people come and fill the hospital beds. Maybe you yourself, you're still lacking a sense of taste or smell. Maybe you had the fever symptoms and you tested positive. So you could tell me, I've seen COVID. I know it's real because I've seen it. I've experienced it. And if that's you, I would say that's what we call personal evidence. Personal testimony that it exists and it is real. So a third witness today that adds to the reliability of God's word is personal evidence. Testimony after testimony after testimony of people who will testify, I have experienced firsthand that this book is true. It is all true. And I will testify to you today that I have known a man who struggled with alcoholic addiction, but by the word of God, he has celebrated his recovery. Heard from him this past week, he is 12 years strong. I've seen people walking through the darkness of depression today now celebrating on Hills of Hope. I have seen a man oppressed by a demon set free in the name of Jesus. I was in his presence, I saw him. He now attends our church. I have seen people fighting for divorce changed by the word of God and now fighting for their marriage. I have seen selfless people become sacrificial and selfless people. I have seen some of the richest, most well-off people quit their jobs, sell their possessions, sell their home, and move to another country just to tell people that what this book says is true. 
It is all true. And I list those things not as a, for the sake of sermon eloquence. I could give you a first name and a last name to every example I just gave you. I could give you their phone number. And if you were to text them and call them up, I promise you, those, whatever name that I give you, they're probably going to point you to one name. A name that is above all names. And they will tell you his name is Jesus. And they came to know of him because of what this book says about him. But then they came to know him personally because they put their faith in him. And they would tell you, I'm pretty sure they would tell you, it is true. What they say about him in this book is true. It is all true. Internal evidence is powerful, guys. And then you combine it with external evidence and doubt starts to fade away. But when I see a heart transformed and a life changed, hope renewed, families fixed, I can hardly remain in doubt. I can't. I can't stay there. I love to tell the story about a guy named Gaylord Camperami. And Gaylord Kambarami, he worked for the Bible Society of Africa. And his job was to go around to these different villages in Africa and distribute free copies of the Bible. And Mr. Kambarami tells a story where he goes to this village called Marewa. And as he's there, he sees this guy laying on the concrete. And so he wants to give that guy a copy of the Bible. The guy rejects him. He's like, no, I don't want that. He says, that book pollutes people. And Mr. Kamarami is like, why? I'm not trying to sell it to you. I just want to give it to you. It's free. You don't have to give me anything. He's like, no, I don't want it. And then he keeps insisting. And then the guy goes, you know, if I take that book from you, I'm just going to tear out the pages and roll it to make cigarettes. And Mr. Kamarami says, I understand that. That's, that's fine. But just promise me this, that when you, before you roll it, you'll read that entire page of scripture before you roll it to smoke. He goes, I can promise that. So Mr. Kambarami gives him the, the copy of the Bible and he goes his way, doesn't see him again. Kambarami tells the story, he says, two years later, he's making his rounds to different villages again and he's holding these events where he's preaching about the power of this book and has power to change lives. And he says he's in this village and he's sharing about this book as he's wrapping up his message and wrapping up the event. He says a guy raises his hand and he stands up and he says, I want to say something. Can I say something? And Mr. Kamarami says, go ahead. What do you need to say? That guy stands up in the crowd and this is what he says. He points to the man on stage and he says, this man doesn't remember me because when I last saw him, I was a drunkard. But he came to our village and persuaded me to take the Bible. I told him I would just use it as paper to roll cigarettes. But I promised to read each page before doing so, which I did. So I smoked my way through Matthew. <laughs> and I smoked the whole book of Mark and the book of Luke. And he says, I started to smoke through John. But he says, then I read this page in John, and it said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now I've seen a light shine in my face. I'm now a follower of Christ, for I've seen the light. Listen, when the Spirit speaks through his word, it's living and it's active. and has the power to save a life in the moment and to change a heart over a lifetime. I want to say to us all that the evidence is before us. Evidence is before us. And if there's anyone here, anyone listening who denies the trustworthiness of this book, who denies it's true, who's trying to say that it can't be trusted, I'm wondering if it's not so much an intellectual issue. Because it's all before us. The evidence is there before us. But I wonder if at the heart of it, it's a heart issue. 
Perhaps it's a heart issue. Mark Twain once said, he said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. He said, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. In other words, what he's saying is what a lot of people are thinking. It's, it's not that I don't get it. I get it. I just don't want to live by it. And I'm wondering if there's anybody here trying to say we can't trust the Bible. It's not true. I'm wondering if that's just a smoke screen. Because people want to say you can't trust it. It's been changed. The Bible's been changed. Perhaps the reality is that they do not want to be changed. That it might require their hearts to be changed. Listen, that is the beauty of this book. That's what's so beautiful about this book. It changes lives. I know so many people who go to WebMD on the internet, go to MayoClinic.com when they're sick, but they don't, they don't deny it and they don't not go to it. They don't not trust it because it is revealing their symptoms. No, they go to it because it reveals their symptoms. It tells them what's the sickness that they have, but they also trust it because it gives them the treatment for their sickness. It tells them what they need to do. Don't throw this out. Don't deny this because it reveals the symptoms of your heart. If you're denying this and you're doubting this because you're afraid that it's going to change you, it's going to change your life, can I be frank with you? It will. It will. And if you don't want it to reveal your sin, it'll do that too. But we go to it, we trust it, because not only does it show us the symptoms of a sinful heart, it gives us the treatment and the cure for our sin, and it shows us how to experience life, the highest quality of life, life abundantly. So everyone listening, will you give this book a chance? Will you ask God if this is true, will you change my life? Will you allow me experience life to the fullest? I'll close with this last verse. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 63, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I pray that you will choose life. Will you guys pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much that you're not just some God way out there beyond the stars who we cannot see or know, but God, you have spoken to us through your word and you keep speaking through it. It is alive and it's active and it's relevant for every day. God, I pray that if there's anything veiling our hearts that's keeping us from believing it as being true and being authoritative in every matter of my life. God, I pray that you would help us to see that this is true. It gives life and it sets us free. So God, would you strengthen our faith, increase our faith in your holy word. May we keep on coming back and no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what happens in our personal situation or what happens in countries on the other side of the world, we trust that you will keep your promises that you spoke in your word. God, you are so good. You're so good. And so we worship you. We want to respond to what your word says, for it says that you are good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.